listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody who's listening to the Business of Baking podcast today. Today's a pretty exciting day for me because I get to chat to Mike McCary of Mike's Amazing Cakes, which is located, if you don't know, in Redmond, Washington. But I feel like you guys should all know who Mike is. He is one of the shining lights of our industry, not only for his amazing sculptural work, but also for the fact that he's just a plain nice guy. Actually, let's just say, let's just be real here. He's kind of famous just for being a guy <laughs> in a, in a female dominated industry but I'm pretty excited to be talking to him because he's both somebody who I've admired for a long time and somebody who knocked my socks off last year at Cake International when I walked up to say hello absolutely practically peeing my pants and he knew who I was which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, so in addition to open, opening and running his own bakery, Mike has taught across the world. He's recently been here in Australia, which is exciting for me, although I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> He's also a crafty instructor of five classes, which I feel is like some sort of record, but we should probably uh, look that up. He teaches in person uh, in, his, in his premises in Washington. Uh, some, several friends of mine now have done his three-day masterclass, and that's definitely on my, my cake bucket list. He's also a dad to 16-year-old Olivia, so we will probably commiserate over the fact that parenting teenagers is just such a, a life adventure and somehow more challenging than cake actually and he is an all-around hilarious guy he's appeared on television a bunch of times you guys know who mike is come on i feel like if you don't and you're listening to this we're now going to educate you about all that so welcome mike to the business of making podcast we made it happen hooray hey michelle how's it going you know i want to meet that guy you just talked about because he sounds fantastic <laughs> all of it's true though like i actually did a bunch of background research on you i'm like dude this guy's been around forever doing cool stuff yeah i'm old man that's there's no doubt <laughs> the old cake mariner that's me <laughs> well that is going to be one of my questions later actually which is that you've been in this business for so long and we all want to know we all want to know your secret about that but let's jump in right from the very beginning so, yeah so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to say that I used to eat anti-inflammatories like they were M&Ms. Uh, my, my favorite candy. <laughs> right? So right. this yeah, podcast and, and the Business of Baking blog are all about just that, obviously the business side. So I promise no questions about, you know, 3D structure and whether or not you can use, you know, like plumbing pipe and have that be considered edible or whatever. So the, here's the real reason why you're here. I mean, other than the fact that I obviously admire your work and think you're just an all-around fabulous person, but I uh, was speaking to a friend of mine, oh, I want to say like over a couple of years ago now, who had done your three-day masterclass, which I think everybody in the world should do because some of the results of that class are just unbelievable. And she was telling me that she learned by sitting in the bakery for three days that um, you don't actually do these amazing cakes as the bulk of your business. And I was like, that's not a thing. What do you mean? It's Mike's amazing cakes. All he does is amazing cakes, right? And she's like, yeah, well, they're all amazing, but they're not all these 3D, insanely complex, beautiful cake. And I was like, what? 
what? That's not what? And then last year when I met you at Kick International, I was like, all right, Mike, tell me the truth. Is that real? Is it real that you don't just do these all day? And you confirm. So I think on this podcast, what I want to do is pull back the curtain on what really happens at Mike's Amazing Cakes. So the creaking door, opening the creaking door. Right? Like, <laughs> is it? <laughs> well, I tell you that, that what she, what she said was true. I don't, we're, let me give you a little context. We're a custom business, meaning that we don't have any retail. It's all done by order by people either coming in or sitting down and doing an email with us. Uh, that being said, we do anywhere from 15 to you know, 40 or 50 cakes a week. You know, we're, our busiest part of the year is our wedding season, which for us is July and August because our brides are trying not to get wet. Not Heat's not an issue. The wet is. So August, our driest month, is always busiest. Uh, out of all the cakes that we do, about 65% are wedding cakes. And the remaining are birthday cakes, celebration cakes, things for a corporate world. Uh, within that, those are usually, that side of it is usually what people are used to seeing from me. Sculptures, over-the-top cakes, things like that. But occasionally we'll do a wedding cake. Like we did a, a stack of Pokemon balls with a, a two Pokemon on top Pokemon. <laughs> the Jewish guys, the Pokemon on top of the balls, that was a wedding cake. We were, were surrounded by Microsoft, the campus. We're Nintendo of North America's across the street. So we have a lot of nerds and geeks that come in and they ask for unusual things, but it's a business. And that's what this podcast is about. I will take all the four tier smooth ivory buttercream cakes that I can get my hands on because my profit line is highest on something like that. So as much as what I put on Instagram and as much as the things you see me put on Facebook are also very interesting, very sexy at times, hopefully that's because that that's what people want to see from me. If I post a four tier buttercream cake, nobody's going to care because it's not what they're looking to get from me. But we do more of that than we do anything. The, our business is peppered with the very interesting Mike McCary esh type of cake. We certainly, I'm, you know, I'm making, uh, Ferrari tomorrow, but that's not all we're, but that's one, or and then I'm also making a building. I'm making a baseball stadium, but those are two cakes out of the 30 cakes that we're making this week. They won't pay the bills as well as my assistant Lana has been with me for 19 years. Who's doing, you know, four tier standard wedding cakes. The profit margin on those are much higher than me parked for two days making, you know, an insanely detailed baseball stadium. Do we get a good price for that? We try to get the best price we can, but it's not the profit line that three, four-tier cakes that are being done in a day by Lana. Yeah. That was a really long answer to your question. <laughs> that, that was a great answer, though, because that's the truth of it. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to make those decisions. Something I teach endlessly, which is I say to people, look, these incredibly spinning, light up, whatever, you know, 3D, you know, all this kind of stuff, cakes are amazing and they're beautiful and they're fantastic. But it is really hard to get somebody to not so much pay for it, but how many people are ordering that, firstly, on a weekly basis? And how right. many are understanding the the work that goes behind that? Not very many, you know? It's it's a hard right. thing to translate to people. I mean, you know, if, same thing with an artist, right? If we look at a painting, do we necessarily understand what went behind that? Not really. We either like it or Not we don't really. like it, and we want it or we don't want it, you know? Simple. Exactly. Really? I, uh, when I started 21 years ago, I couldn't get somebody to spend $200 on a sculpted cake. But that was back... And that was a lot of that was public awareness. I mean, back in the day, 21 years ago, there was no internet. And 
somebody would ask me, they'd see that I sculpted cakes. And I said, does anybody else sculpt cake? Are you the only one in the country that does it? I'd say, I have no idea. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I can't tell you. There was no way to know. There was no interconnectivity across from one shore to the other about who's doing what. That's certainly different now. So public's awareness of what a cake can be, whether it's round or square, and whether that's the internet's doing or cake TV, a combination of both, their expectations are different. And that sometimes they're higher. You know, I don't have my wedding cake. I, we did a wedding cake that we shipped to Hawaii where it was their, their dogs. They wanted to bring their dogs to the ceremony in Hawaii and they couldn't. So they had the wedding cake. They had us do their dogs as cake and we shipped it to Hawaii and that was their wedding cake, which is certainly out of breaking out outside of the normal traditional cake box. But that's again, that stuff is not necessarily a bread and butter. It makes us unique. It gives us an identity. It, it, it makes us perhaps because we've got when I started again 21 years ago and you went to one of our wedding magazines and it, in the resource section in the back, they would list six places that did wedding cakes. You look in there now, and there's going to be like 80 places listed because now we have what we call a home cottage laws where uh, people can bake from their homes. So that's really opened up the door to much more competition. My market share over, I'll, I'll be honest, over 20 years has diminished because instead yeah. of eight places had doing the bulk of the wedding cakes for our region, there are 50, 60, or maybe even a hundred. I know that on like the knot is a very uh, good website for us to be a part, part of our internet presence. I counted it the other day, as a matter of fact, thinking about this podcast being due diligence. I, there was a, over 120 places listed that will do your wedding cake. Mind boggling. So well, it's no wonder that market share has diminished over time because the competition has increased. Right. And that doesn't include the ones who are not, who can't afford that advertising. Exactly. Right. Because exactly. There'd be, well, there'd so there's be some, more out in the woodwork somewhere. There's, right. There's ones who it doesn't occur to them to advertise or they don't know that or they can't afford it or, you know, whatever. There's, there's plenty out there who are under the radar, you know? So and I think the lesson from that is, you know, I run into a lot of people who are starting their business or looking to start their business and they're, they're vowed that they'll never do a wedding show. I do every wedding show I can stand because of that, you know, and that's in my mind always the 120 people doing wedding cakes all living on the internet or more. I, I don't let up. I don't let up. I don't sit back. Do we have a reputation in our area? Yeah. After 21 years, we certainly do to some degree or another, but it's, it's a new batch of brides every year. It's just not a renewing base of customer. It's, it's, I have to remarket every year to this new batch of brides. So I got to, we have, we're lucky. We have one definitive wedding show in Seattle and it's, it's the big kahuna. It's the starting gate. It virtually is the starting gate for our wedding season. And it's in January. It's like the third week in January. And if I, I know other businesses have decided not to do the show, but I can't do it. I can't pull that plug because we get so much referral. We get so many wedding gigs from just doing that show. And we put a big foot forward there. But I got to tell you, it's 350 vendors there. You know, 9,000 people go through the show. You know, there's going to be 12 other places that are doing wedding gigs. So you got to do something to stand out. So it helps going back to what I originally said about doing these cakes it helps our identity and helps people remember leaving this show after looking at 13 cake vendors it helps them to remember who we are and will still be in their mind when they decide to start shopping right because it's, it's your point of difference but it's not necessarily what you're providing to them it's actually i'm so glad you said that about the wedding show because i was going to ask you do you still actively market to that group and obviously the answer is yes right because if instagram Absolutely. and face if if instagram and facebook and social media are taken up by the ooh wow sexy cakes there still needs to be an avenue by which you attract the not so say i mean no less sexy because i'm sure they come from you and they're fabulous but i just mean you know no less spectacular 
that there has to be an avenue by which you let the world know that you do that too. Because I have to say, I, right. looked, at, I looked at your website. I'm like, I don't see any buttercream cakes here. I think there's a couple, but I was like, where are they all hiding? But I guess the answer is that you're locally marketing those. Yes. We, when we do the show, we have a 20 by 10 booth, right? Uh, we put out what we call our runway cakes, which are, you know, on an upside down cake, a tilting tea kettle or teapots with teacups and, you know, these very unusually strange, which really gets people to stop and go, wow, look at that. You know, that, I didn't know that could be a cake. And look at that. But then we also, within that are the standard finishes, you know, the top six finishes that everybody asks for. We've got cakes that are displaying that because as much as it's a double-edged sword, if we're showing that they're thinking, well, that's really cool. And that looks really expensive. Well, we just need a four-tier cake that's got a smooth every buttercream with fresh flowers. But they also see that in our booth because it's, you know, and also people ask me all the time, being on TV, which I haven't been lately, it's back, you know, seven, eight years ago, was kind of our glory days back then. But it was the first time cake was on TV. And they'll say, being on TV, that's got to help business. It did at the time. You know, it was especially because cake TV, if you want to call it that, was new. And it was easier to get showcased that way, where now it's more of a, I won't say a mundane thing, but there are many more businesses and many more people on cake TV. And it's not the unique showcase that it used to be. But it did help us, especially going back to that wedding show when they're you got thousands of people coming through. It helps that they've seen you on TV and they remember you. But the double-edged sword to that is they look at your stuff. They're like, this is the guy outside TV. This is stuff is really cool. But now let's go find a wedding cake we can afford. The double-edged sword is they don't think they can afford me. So we have been battling for years the preconception that we aren't affordable. So part of the effect from that is that we keep our prices much lower than you would think. To, in fact, I can illustrate it. If you looked at, let's say, the top 50 places to get wedding cakes in Seattle, and there was an A level, A being most expensive, then a B level and a C level, we're somewhere in the middle of B. Wow. It's, it's because we are, because of my background uh, as a pastry chef, being a corporate pastry chef and, and being trained to do a lot of things quickly, and my assistant, Lana, who's the other person in production in our shop, she comes from high volume baking, wholesale baking. She, you know, she was on a line where they had to do a thousand Linzer torts or a thousand happy birthday cakes. And so, and then she was ship's, ship supervisor. So she's used to doing stuff very quickly. So we're kind of a, we can do a lot of volume. Consequently, also because Lana has been with me for so long and my office manager, you know, increases every year and raises and things that my, my labor is high, but anybody's labor is your highest cost. It's always going to be higher than your food cost. And mine is higher because I've got very loyal people who work very hard and I've, you know, hopefully I've taken care of them over the years. So I have a high labor rate. So as much as volume as we can take those four tier or three tier buttercream cakes, again, that increases my profit margin. So because we can do so much, I try to keep my price point low so people can have those four tier that's approachable. Somebody who's on a budget can come in here and get a four-tier wedding cake from us. But I also can capture somebody who wants to go off the charts and do the stacked Pokemon balls for thousands of dollars. You know, it's, we try to capture from one end of the scale to the other because we can do a lot of volume. It's, it kind of goes opposite. I know there's a lot of places who will decide we won't do anything for under $500. And that's, and that's great. If you, if it's just one person, you're just keeping your business low or you're doing it at home, that makes sense. But for me, I'd lose a lot of money if I decided to do that. If I didn't take anything under $500, there's a whole ton of cake that I wouldn't be doing. 
I'll take a cake for 20 bucks. I'll take a cake for 2000 bucks. I will do take all of that because we can fit it all in. But that we have that structure for that. It is not practical for everybody. Mike, can I just, can I take you with me on my teaching everywhere I go? <laughs> I, sure. I, I have to tell you, let's like, go, I'm, Michelle, right now. Right, let's go. Right, I, I'm listening to this, and I, no joke, my jaw is like slowly dropping to the floor, going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> Finally, somebody who not only agrees with all the stuff I said, but is actually living that life. I, uh, I just, I feel like I sometimes I feel like my job is to endlessly push a melting snowball uphill. It just sort of feels like that sometimes. And one of the things- It's really hard in Australia. (laughs) Really hard, especially at the moment, not so much because it's winter, but the rest of the year, yes. And um, That's right. It's so refreshing to hear this only because one of the things I carry on about endlessly is I often say to people, your problem with not making money isn't your customer. It's that you're not moving fast enough. Like I have a real, I have a real like bee in my bonnet about the fact that as an industry we all work too slowly, and I sort of say, you know, if you want to make those ten thousand sugar flowers sitting in front of your TV, kind of enjoying the fact that you can take your time and be leisurely about it and whatever, that's great. But let's not blame the customer for then not paying you for every hour you work. It doesn't work that way. Exactly. You know. So, I mean, we'll go to uh, perfect. You brought up sugar flowers. We don't make our own flowers, right? There's a certain rate that I pay Lana if. I, the amount of money I'd have to pay for her to make one elaborate rose, I can't get the money for that. It could, mm-hmm. No customer I have will pay what I would have to charge to make up for the labor for that. Yeah. So we go into the, you know, I go into the wholesale sugar flower market and I'm buying stuff online and I'm shipping it to us. And we're using that because I can't make it cheaper than, you know, could I make it better? Yeah, probably. But it's, I can't get the money for it because of the amount of time it would take. And I think also, well, in particular on flowers, to be honest, I don't know that the customer would notice. Uh, generally not. Generally not. Unless you're an, you know, an advocate and you've seen Nicholas Lodge's roses or something like that and you could compare the difference, they're not. <laughs> you know, as long as they look pretty and they're arranged nicely. You know, Ron Ben Israel is a great example in terms of beautiful flower work put on there. But, you know, what the market will bear, what he can get per serving for a wedding cake. I can't get that. I can't. I'd well, love to. In but part, we don't have that market. Right. In part, he's who he is. In part, he's in New York City, one of the most expensive cake places in the world. In part, he also, yeah. his labor cost is somewhat controlled by his army of um, interns, you know? So, absolutely. Absolutely. He's, he's got like a perfect storm there of making it more possible than it necessarily is. But it's, you know, it doesn't mean anybody who's using uh, wholesale ones are any worse or any better or whatever. I think it's just different business models. And actually, that brings me uh, to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So, I, I heard about this buttercream cake thing, which blew me away. And then I heard that you spend like the vast majority of your time in the kitchen and that you have other you have an office manager other staff who run the admin side of things like email and phone calls and tastings and whatever and i have to tell you this has got to be the dream setup for every cake maker i think i've ever spoken to who just want to spend all their time in the making and yeah the the joke i hear uh, fairly often is if i had no customers my business would be great <laughs> or if i didn't have to exactly. talk to people it would the, be great so apparently, damn customers right how dare <laughs> they so apparently you have actually kind of set this up that you don't have to do the the, the bulk of the admin and the tasting and the, and the people organization i would love to hear about how that came to fruition and is it true well uh let me give you the, the history of that really quick I started business with a partner named John Auburn, and it was just him and I. Uh, he was more used to front of the house, and I was 
stronger in production. So that's, that's how we broke down the business. He would deal with the front and I would deal with the back. Then as we grew, he, because he was also able to produce, he came to the back and we hired, but we did it incrementally. You know, it was just us two that went for a while. And as soon as things started to grow, we pushed really hard, really hard. <laughs> okay. So starting a business, let me go off the side and bring me back to where I was, Michelle. Okay. We would do anything to make money. And what we did was as when we started, one of the things we did, we called a, we started a little sub business called Chef Puccini. And Chef Puccini, we made dog food cakes <laughs> for pets. <laughs> So we take back in the day, the only kind of dog food, now dog food is really advanced and really elaborate and there's all, it's very healthy. But back then it was, I don't know if you guys had Alpo, but it was like basically ground up cereal filler and some kind of meat ground up into a very fine pulp and it was easy to shape it into things. So we had, what did we have? We had three kinds of cake. We had a round one that we used cream cheese and we would pipe on it, or we would do a fire hydrant or we'd make a cat face. And I had a little t-shirt made up with my Australian shepherd, Australian shepherd uh, on the front. And we actually did a few dog shows. And to this day, once in a blue moon, somebody will ask about if we still do Chef Puccini cakes. But it's, you know, that's, I don't know what got us on that, but that's what we did for a little while. And we did some dog food cakes and I brought in a few hundred dollars here or there, but it's, it's, it, that was the scrapping and the fighting at the beginning to do everything we could to pay rent and get to the point where, John could move to the back because that's what he really wanted to do. He wanted to work on cake. So he moved to the back. We hired an office manager. And then we've had that system ever since. John and I parted ways after about two years. He was commuting too far. and I was taking too much part of his home life. So I bought him out and I've always had that system in place. I'm, my strength is not being up front. I, I can consult. I know how to do it. I, I can do it. I'm a little or really bad to have in front because I want to, I'm apologetic. I want to, you, this cake's two thousand dollars. Well, why don't I just, you know, why don't I just give it to you? Because I feel bad. <laughs> so I'm not the best person to have in front. So it's never been my role up there. But if I was starting out, and I was by myself. I'd absolutely be doing it. Uh, I'd have to become a harder person in terms of pricing. But it's easy to be hard in the back. So when my office manager Teresa comes, I'm very, I'm very stern with pricing, and I'm very confident because I'm not sitting there staring at them in the face. But it's. She does all of the, you know, what is her job? She deals with all the appointments. She deals with all the emails. She deals with all the phone calls. On a typical week, we're, uh, shops or the offices open Tuesdays through Saturdays. Saturdays is completely dedicated to appointments. And whether she's just doing herself, she'll do it no less than seven appointments every Saturday. But at the beginning of the year, our starting date from that wedding show, we'll have somebody else in the office and they will do 14 appointments every Saturday, every Saturday for at least three months. Then during the week, she'll do anywhere from four to eight appointments during the week. So it's, we're really appointment oriented, although it's not to say we don't take orders and just emails because that happens as well. More than it used to, people are more comfortable with that nowadays. But that keeps her more than enough. I mean, her dealing with the orders, doing the consultations, doing the confirmations, all of that, it is a full-time job and she's kept very busy doing that. So that dedicates or, or sets it up so I'm in the back producing because that's what my strength is and then that's also Lana's strength but Lana's also good because she's very good at the front as well so when it's slower in January and we don't have as many cakes Lana changes her role and she goes up front and does Saturday appointments does the open houses and can fit into that role as well I also am cross-trained on I can go in front so we're all three uh Teresa has some cake background as a hobby and she could come back and put something on a cake and, and she's not uncomfortable in that role so it's there's a cross pollination there that happens quite a bit. 
it's working in your zone of genius, right? It's working at what you're good at. <laughs> and, you know, right. and so I love the fact that you said it was a gradual process because I often comment on that. In fact, at the end of my, right before I sold my cake business, I still maintained one day a week in the kitchen because I, I still liked it and I just wanted to. And I kind yeah. of always, I always say that, you know, you got to do what, both what you're good at and what your business needs. And so for me, you know, I was in the office most of the time, but I had that one day a week on a Friday, honestly, to keep my creative soul happy and also to right. be, and to be in touch with my staff. And I had a rule that nothing ever walked out the door unless I looked at it. So it kind of, it met all those things, but it's, I love the, the dog cake story because I, <laughs> I, I just did a whole, I actually just did, it hasn't come out yet, but I just did a whole podcast about 10 crazy things I did when I started my business, like crazy, stupid, ridiculous money makers or not. And I'll just share with you that one of them was, I didn't realize when I started my business that you could buy cake boxes, like, like from a cake decorating store. I didn't realize you could do that. I thought it had to be wholesale. So I used to go, yeah. to, I used to go to all the local bakeries and lie and say that my kids had school projects and I needed a cake box. <laughs> So for, like, right? so for like two years people were like i'd have to, and i couldn't go to the same bakery twice because like how many projects can your kids possibly have right and so for like literally two years i was like begging borrowing stealing cake boxes from pretty much everywhere <laughs> See, that's I, scrapping that's fighting for it man that's scrapping and <laughs> taking care of the margins there it was it was pretty much you. it and so i have to say though that this is one of the things that makes me totally crazy about our industry is how easily people give up and how unwilling they are to actually do this kind of crazy stuff now i, I well the other thing that people have to realize um when i used to do cakes when i wasn't owning a business i did the cakes for cake's sake and of course to make money but it's for whatever or wherever I was working, I started in the world as a pastry chef when I moved to cake. And as a pastry chef, I you know occasionally get to do a cake. Uh, when I was at like a Weston, I would occasionally get to do a wedding cake. Once in a great while, maybe do a birthday cake, but not very much. And as I did them, you know that's what I enjoyed the most. But I was able to put sink myself completely into that. Worry about every border. Worry about every little thing that I was going to put on it. And as you take on a business, you're you're going to give some of that up. Right, because so, you can't just worry about the cakes. You have to worry about payroll and taxes and possible complaints and who's going to toast you on, you know, on Yelp or whatever. All of that. It's you. You have X amount of time in your life, and the creative time will have to give way to some degree or another to the business end. And okay. you got to be willing to do that. So this brings me to a question that it, you might be a little bit controversial. Ooh, controversial. Uh, which Ooh. is that I think people give up way too easily. Now, I actually mean that on two, uh, on two planes. I mean that one, professionally, they give up when business gets hard. But I also mean it, you know, like, you know, if a client complains or something goes wrong or, you know, whatever, they tend to have a big tantrum on Facebook and go, right, that's it. I'm, I'm throwing in the towel on this business. It's all too difficult. Customers only care about price. But I also mean it creatively, which is that people kind of lose it when there's no cutter or mold or whatever for exactly what they want. And I recently had a very enlightening conversation with Jacqueline Butler where we talked about this, where she was saying that when she doesn't have an exact cutter for something, you know, her students will complain about it. Like, what do you mean you don't have a cutter to do this exact thing? So tell me, am I being super old fogey here, right? Or would you agree with me that people in our industry at the moment seem to want everything so easy? We've seemed to the have industry. lost it. We've, we've lost that the desire industry. to go after it. Well, you know, what's, what's happened, I mean, if you walked into a cake show, when the retail part of a cake show, God, even, I don't know, five, six years ago, 
and is very different landscape than what you see now, because what you see now are more and more the trend has been has gone to making things easy. Uh, you know, here's you, how you can here's a mold for lace instead of piping lace. Here's here's a lace already done where you don't even have to make the lace. You know, it's it's cutters that can cut things out and and do drop you know molds for drop borders and all sorts of things like that where it's it's gotten easier and easier and and you can buy whole systems that make it very simple to produce something fantastic and it's getting away from doing it by hand. Uh, we do all our icing by hand. We create sharp edges on buttercream that are you know, we'd like to get it as perfectly smooth as we can and as sharp edges we possibly can. We do it freehand. We're not using acrylic plates. My philosophy is you need to be able to do it freehand because if you're getting into something else like a building or a sculpture, you need to know how to manipulate ganache or buttercream, whatever you're using by hand because you're not going to have an acrylic plate, you know, sandwich system to get that perfect whatever when it's at 36 degrees and, and, and it undulates up to a different thing. You're going to be able to an acrylic plate system isn't helping you your skill set to be able to do that so if you're strong and you can ice around a six inch round cake and get it perfect you are going to do really well in sculptures as well it's it's good to have but that goes back to and that's why land is so fast and does it so well because it, it was repetition it was doing it doing it practicing 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 and it really the basics because what she was doing on that those lines she worked out with so much repetition was were the basics she was doing this stuff as the basics and it made her a much stronger I don't know crafts person later with doing what, what she's doing now so it's so I guess I agree with you was that a good answer <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I like I, I'm all for I'm all for progress I really am and I'm all for you know the business heart of me goes well some of these tools make things faster and easier and you can produce them quicker so you're saving on labor and then there's part of me that's just like yeah but it breeds such I don't know, laziness. I don't know what the, and it, it breeds panic because people go, I can't get this cutter for this panic, 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 panic. And I just think, Oh, I guess I think it, just- I, if I think it breeds anything, it's, it's, it's what those, what those things are to some degree are kind of a crutch and it's not making you a stronger crafts craftsman. It's mm. relying on a system and, and, but there is another side. I, I mean, and, Michelle, I could argue the other side. It's like time is money. And if I, something comes out that makes it faster, I'm all for that because I, you know, whatever time I'm spending on the two tier cake where I can bang the stuff out of molds lets me spend more time on something more complicated that I need to do. But on the other hand, if I'm, if I grew up in a system where everything was handed to me in a cutter, I'm not, my craftsman abilities to do other usual things isn't going to be as strong. Right. Right. I'm, I'm right. I guess my, my thing is learn how to do it the old fashioned way and then use a cutter. <laughs> like learn how to do it one, you know, the real way first. And then, and then you can invest in cutters and, and whatever. That's, See, the, that's thing. the thing, Michelle. I mean, people get, let's say you're brand new to cake decorating right now and you walk into the retail landscape. That's what's available to you. That's what they're selling you. The, the standard is different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you didn't have any of this stuff available to you. You had to do everything by hand. Now, you, there's so much you don't have to do by hand. So it's, they'd have to be pretty dedicated to want to go back, back to the future, back in time. And there are time machine of the DeLorean and go back to learning it the hard way and doing it without cutters or doing it without a sheeter. People are amazed. We don't have a sheeter. <laughs> Well, you, you don't, don't have a sheeter yeah. for but, for buttercream. You don't need one, right? So, well, I mean, we all we do fun it too. I would say so. Let's say it, 
out of all the wedding cakes we do, I'm going to say that 45% are fun. Okay. okay. Maybe a sheet is a good investment. <laughs> a sheeter would be a good investment, but also I, and I'm not boasting that we don't have a sheeter. You know, Lana would love to have a sheeter, but especially considering we're both getting older and, you know, the aches and pains of life are, you know, increase. It would be easier to have a sheeter. But I mean, when I'm rolling something out that's 36 by 36, sheeter's not going to help me. It'll start right. me maybe. But I'm, you know, I, but again, we're very fast at rolling out fun. And so I don't, you know, there's one side of me. It's like, I'd like to have a sheeter. Another side is like, ah, 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 in the old days, we didn't have a sheeter. <laughs> yeah, my lawn, you know, gets, <laughs> we don't need a sheeter. Right. That's it. We don't need that thing. Well, I think you just get used to a certain way of working, right? And you just make it work for you. So this actually, thanks for referencing the fact that you're apparently a dinosaur. <laughs> so you have been in this business for 21 and a bit, or actually longer if we include the pastry part of it. Uh, so let's just say over 20 years. And so yes, here's absolutely. my big question, Mike, prepare yourself. Other than a whiskey and a cigar every day, which apparently is like the secret to all people who live over a hundred or whatever. What do you think, <laughs> what do you think has keep, kept you in it for so long? Like, what do you think is the secret to longevity in this industry? Especially given that people seem to give up so damn easily, but you've been, you've been at this rodeo for a while. So what keeps you in it? And what do you think? My, my personal deal. I like working for myself. You know, I worked, I did a lot of corporate work when I was pastry chef, hotel corporations, restaurant corporations. And I didn't, I wasn't very good at the politics of those particular institutions. So it's, my personality is, tends to speak, I speak my mind and corporations don't like that. <laughs> so once I got a taste for working for myself, it was great. So that's kind of a nirvana for me. And I became a happier person in general because uh, the only politics that exist or whatever I might create <laughs> to my credit or to my detriment. Um, but the other thing is, well, the, I can rattle off, depending on my mood, I could rattle off everything wrong that's wrong with doing this. But and when I'm in a good mood, I could rattle off all the things that are good. And one of the, the best things is that it's, it's never boring. Okay. It's as much as we'll do all of those wedding cakes. I, we're still, every day is different. There's always something new we have to make, something new to figure out, a new puzzle to solve. So I'm never bored. You know, I would be, and that's one of the reasons I stopped being a pastry chef because 500 Danish at five in the morning for the Shriners, you know, wasn't working for me. I wasn't making my artistic muse, you know, the thing that makes me want to get up in the morning very happy. There's a lot of pastry chefs that, that love that. They love the production challenge. They love that repetition but that wasn't my deal. I, when I was in high school, I had to decide between art school and cooking school. So I guess somewhere buried deep down in my, my, <laughs> my entrepreneur, my, my capitalist bent on wanting to make money, there, there's an artist there somewhere. Uh, and it's more buried than it used to be because of running a business, I guess. But that's my own personal lament. But it's there. So I'm, I really like the fact that every day is, is different. There's always something new going on. So I'm never bored. I'm never complacent. And that's probably my number one thing. I, I, I started life as a pastry chef too. And uh, I, people always say to me, what was it like? And I say, well, you know, when you go into a cafe, like on your way to work and you pick up a croissant and a coffee, some schmo was up at three o'clock in the morning rolling that croissant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I definitely I shudder when I, to think of it. 
<laughs> right, right. You know, and I used to tell these stories, uh, 100% true, of getting up at three o'clock in the morning to be at work by 3.30 and then working 12, 13, 14 hours and then changing out of my chef gear to go and pick up my kids from daycare or whatever it was. And it's, it's an incredibly, people don't understand that pastry chefing either happens first thing in the morning or last thing at night because it's what you eat in the morning or it's what you order last. So Yes, exactly. Know, it's, it's, it's hard work. Dedicated pastry chefs are a different animal, you know, especially an executive who's, they need to be a jack of all trades, especially if you're working at a really elaborate hotel, you got to know a lot of things and you got to be able to do a lot of things. You can't, you can't just do it on one thing that you really like to do. It's, it's a small part of the, the bigger picture that's in front of you. Yeah, I actually, my big, my big pastry dream, like one of the big reasons I went to pastry school was to be a hotel pastry chef. This was like my big goal, right? I grew up, in, I grew, well, because I grew up in Los Angeles and, you know, there's ah. lots of beautiful hotels there. And also I grew up in that culture of seeing all those cakes that like Vegas hotels had come out with, you know, right. and this was like my big thing. Right. And then I worked at it for ages, very long story. Eventually I did make it into that kind of industry and I lasted exactly a week. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. I couldn't think of anything worse. I was like, this is torturous. Like, you got to be kidding me. So I did production work. But when I got to hotel work, I realized what a, it's like a, it's like a pastry chop shop, man. It just, it sucked. I hated it. Not the place for me. And I'm not a political animal as well. So it didn't work. So, okay. So I, have two, right? I can't, I can't do politics. I'm no good at it. All right, so I have, two, I have two kind of fun questions for you to close out this interview, which I have to say has been so informative. And I feel like, I don't know, the dog cake thing really got me. But anyway, so I, have, I have two questions just for the fun of it. So when I did my stalking of you and your website, I noticed that you have dozens, like literally dozens and dozens of flavors of cake and filling, and they all look completely delicious. But when I had my business, I also had like this really long list and I was like super proud of my like, you know, sour cream, lemon, poppy seed, whatever, lemon curd, yada, yada, whatever, whatever. And in reality, like 90%, maybe even more of my customers just ordered chocolate <laughs> because they didn't, want to, they didn't want to offend their guests. So I know you have this really amazing list. What do they order the most of? What do they order the most of? Well, for a long time now, for several years now, it's been something with caramel. Right, especially the new the new trend that happened uh, for us four years, three years ago, salty caramel. Yeah, that flavor profile has become very prominent, and very I guess I don't know if it's uniquely American, but it's been it's in your you know it's it's hit the mainstream when you see it on in the ice in terms of flavor components as an ice cream flavor in your supermarket or your grocery store or chain. I mean there it sits. So it's it was sticky toffee pudding became a thing for a while. When it was Haagen-Dazs was, was it Haagen-Dazs? They had a competition about picking a new flavor and it became sticky toffee pudding, which is very English, but then it became a thing in America, sticky toffee pudding. So it's caramel is overall flavor profile has been the most popular, but we're a strong berry growing region. So uh, Northwest berries are a big thing, whether it's raspberries or but more accurately, probably Marion berries, or, which is like a blackberry. We do a lot of that when it comes to non-chocolate, non caramel profiles they'll want a berry thing and raspberry is probably the most what's the safest combination we have vanilla with raspberry <laughs> do they think they're being exotic no they just they want they're you know they're not trying to be exotic it's more because we do um tasting open houses once or twice a month throughout the whole year and that's where we're you know, it's like open house and people come in and we're open 
to the public for two and a half hours and they come in and we'll have eight flavors. We have a list of fish, an official list of 15 combinations and we'll have eight on an open house and the next open house will rotate to the, the next seven or eight. And, you know, we're putting out and what's the most, they're really looking for what's safe. They want what they want, what they like as a couple, but they also want another component that they know will be safe. And I always tell them raspberry with vanilla is probably the safest thing you can do. <laughs> but it's, but don't make your whole cake that. What do you guys want to have? I mean, at least make half your cake what you guys want, or at least one tier what you want, and then have what you think would be safer for a bunch of people. But then you've got, you know, there are people who love peanut butter, but we've got such a peanut allergy society now, you know, they got to avoid that. There's, of course, the gluten-free and all that. The vegan is always a consideration. We don't, we don't entertain vegans or, let's see. We do uh, gluten-free. That's about the only thing that we're... I love it. We, we don't, don't give up our dairy for people. I love, that. We, we, <laughs> or, I love that. we don't entertain vegans. I love that. All right. So here is the last question, Mike. No pressure, but it better be good because this is how we're closing it out. Just Okay. All right. You ready? Like, I don't yeah. know. Hang on to your piping bag or whatever. So I want <laughs> you to just finish this sentence for me. If I wasn't a full-time cake maker, I'd be... I would be an illustrator. <laughs> Right. Probably children's book, children's book illustrator. Right. There are the people um, I admire the most. Of of people say, who do you admire? Who uh, my cake hero is Margie Carter. Okay, and I'm guessing you know who Margie is, or you know her personally. I do. Yeah. Uh, she is my number. She is my number one cake hero. Uh, she's like a an old, wonderful Australian hippie <laughs> <laughs> that does the most mind-boggling cakes of all time, and she's like the most centered, happiest cake person I've ever met. Um, but the other people I really admire are that I'm where I draw huge inspiration from are illustrators, whether it's children's books, illustrators or illustrators from the past, uh, like Norman Rockwell or Alfonso Mucha or something like that. And current day illustrators as well. Those are the people that really fuel my creative juices to get them going and make me want to come in here and make something based on what I see or something that's inspired me from them. Yeah, wow. Actually, you know, at the moment I've noticed there's a, a huge uptake in um, hand lettering, which is not illustrating, but it's kind of in that same, you know, sure, absolutely. Art that's thing. illustration. That's a huge, absolutely. that's a huge thing. That's become really, really big now. Uh, I see a lot of it uh, and, and kind of things like paper quilling and whatever, those kind of, you know, more handmade, beautifully done, you know, artistic endeavors, I think are, that's one of the beauties actually of social media and Instagram in particular is that it's so visual and that artists are much more able to share their work than they ever could before, you know? Yes, absolutely. I'm inspired daily by what I see, whether it's another cake person, which happens every day, or it's uh, the number of artists that aren't cake related. Uh, Ray Villafane is uh, a sculptor who started off doing clay work and, uh, character work for marvel and uh, dc comics and all that and he's moved famously on cake tv he was discovered by he loves to carve pumpkins and he's like the, one of the best in the world at carving pumpkins and he does sand and i follow him and he you know every summer he's doing sand sculptures and to see that sculptural work to see the amount of detail and the way they attack something and just is you know works for me but in a different medium, but still inspires me to want to try to do as well as they do or try to come try anyway. Well, the cool <laughs> part about so sand. Very hard, high bar to jump over. <laughs> the cool part about sand and pumpkins, though, is it's kind of like us, right? It doesn't last. Yes, exactly. 
exactly. which is pretty exactly. amazing, actually. That we, we although he's a, he's he's actually starting to pickle stuff. He he's famous for, and he was selling these where he would make he would sculpt like a a yam or a rutabaga, and then he would pickle it. He'd put it in pickling juice and seal it up in mason jars, and you could buy the sculptures because they would last virtually. I don't know. I don't know if they'd last forever, but they'd last for years because they're pickled. So I don't know. I don't, way I don't know if that's cool or weird. <laughs> Possibly <laughs> both. Well, I'm sure Ray would be happy that it would be both. <laughs> well, the, the cake equivalent of that is like fruitcake decorated with royal icing. There you go. Right? Like <laughs> it just gets better every year, right? Until the end of time. My until husband apocalypse I, happens and you need to eat your creation. And, and it'll still be edible. Precisely. <laughs> my, my husband likes to joke that he's, he once ate like 24-year-old, you know, fruitcake or something. I'm like, you know, babe, that's not really an achievement. Uh, the fact that the achievement is like that you live to tell the tale, not the fact that you actually ate it, you know? Uh, a baking badge of honor. Nice. Right, right. <laughs> Seems ridiculous. Australia is a little bit behind the times uh, in these kind of things. Fruitcake is still very much a thing here, although it's less and less and less now. Uh, you know, mud cake is kind of our main our main thing. But there oh, is still. I learned all about mud cake while I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the it's pretty wonderfulness much... of mud cake. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's why you know that whole charbage thing is so easily possible here because the main cake things we use, not everyone obviously, but in in the main is mud cake, which is very carvable and ganache which is very sharpable absolutely is that a word sharpable i don't think it's a word <laughs> I'll just make up language. it is now it is now exactly thank you so much mike for your time today i i feel like completely enlightened and i feel like even more we are on the same wavelength about so many things so that's always exciting for anybody keen to see more of mike's work i will actually in the show notes of this podcast i'll put all the relevant links and whatever to all his amazing work and and maybe a couple of pictures of buttercream wedding cakes too if he lets me uh and for those of you who want to meet Mike in person. Uh, I actually understand, Mike, that you are now starting a new um, cake class concept in, in your shop. So tell me about that. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, we're trying something new. Uh, we call it our cake prep courses. This is where instead of just doing a three-day class or a two-day class and we're doing one cake, we are actually, we have created a four-week course on cake sculpting. We're actually, we're going to take four weeks out. We're only going to have six students. It's in my shop. And we are going to explore the beginning, the middle, and the end of cake sculpting. So when somebody comes in and they're done, there will be no, my goal is that that person will have no more mystery in their head about how to sculpt a cake, how to do the structure for a cake. Every structure that's pertinent will be discussed, uh, shown, and used. Uh, there's going to be at least six cakes, sculpted cakes, produced during that four-week period. Uh, we're also going to talk about, since we're doing a podcast on on the business of cake, we're going to be talking about servings, pricing, and marketing the sculpted cake. So we're going to cover the whole thing. This sounds amazing. Okay, so how, do, so how do people find out about this? They just go to the website and go from there? If they uh, email us, we can send them a complete uh, description of the course that has all the information in it. Okay, so we'll include all that in the show notes for this as well, if anybody's keen to learn from Mike. If you want to learn from him uh, virtually, you can obviously go to his many craftsy classes. He, he gets around, Mike. He gets around. <laughs> and if you want to meet me personally, I'm teaching this year. Uh, my Australia classes are finished, but not, or nearly finished, actually. But then I'll be all over the United States, Canada, and the UK, so you never know where you might meet me. Uh, Kate, are you coming to Cake International this year? I am not, but I'm going to be at, or maybe you're coming to uh, Cake Fair in Orlando in October. 
I'm not. I'll I'm actually, there. I'm not because my American teaching finishes in September and I couldn't justify flying all the way home to Australia oh, and then flying more, back out again. One more month. <laughs> I know. I think my kids might have something to say about that. You know, like they're at they that might. age. They're at that age where it they're like. Orlando after all. Many things to see. Right? But <laughs> they're kind of at that age where they're like, mom, go away. You're irritating me. And then two seconds later, they're like, why do you have to travel so much? I'm like they're in that. Uh, you know, 16 year olds are like. I don't know. They can't decide if they want you in their vicinity or they don't want you in their vicinity. So, you know, it's a day-to-day. Hey, take them to Harry Potter world and they'll love you forever. Right, right. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's like, right, guys, family holiday, we're all going. I think maybe that, maybe I could sell it to them that way, actually. <laughs> Very Any, anyhow, thanks, Mike, so much for chatting with us today. I'm sure everybody found this in, enlightening and informative. And just thanks for being an all-around awesome guy, really. And not only inspiring us all creatively, but now also inspiring us from a business POV. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Michelle, it has been a great pleasure and you're making the world better for cake. So good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Not an easy job. (laughs) Not at all. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.